Would you open God's precious holy word to Numbers 22, the story of Balaam extends through chapters 22, 23, 24 into 25. And so for a couple of more Sundays after tonight, God willing, we'll be looking at um, the way, the doctrine, and the error of Balaam. That's what it's called in the New Testament, his name and his, uh, these ignominious titles are given to him in Second uh, Peter, in Jude, and in the Revelation chapter 2 with regard to the church to the letter at Pergamum, Pergamos. It's really, when I read the story of Balaam, I, I, I have warm, fond memories of the days of my childhood, which I, I think I talked about it a few Sundays ago, you know, in the King James Version. This is just a very entertaining passage of scripture because you know instead of donkey they use another word in the King James Version and I told you how my mother was my son back in those days let me think it was beginner primary junior intermediate and senior is that what it was yeah and it was like you know like People in there for, there were four years difference in our ages or saying every Sunday school class. It was a small church. My mother was my Sunday school teacher forever, seemed like. And I told you last, when I talked about this, last time when I talked about it, how she was, from time to time, would ask us what our favorite passage of scripture was. I'd pop up, you know, and I'd read from the King James Version of the story of Balaam and his donkey until she finally told me to sit down and shut up. But it was always been an, it was always an entertaining passage of scripture just because I got to say words that I usually couldn't say when I read it in the King James Version. But I'm going to be preaching on it now and it's still just as entertaining in in the uh, well, this, I'm still using a, my translation here, but in uh, whatever you use, if it's not the King James, it's still, it's still a great story that gives us personal perspective about some things. We're going to look at that. So the first message, I call it, don't beat the donkey. Um, I'm going to read the whole text. I may make a comment here and there going through the text. And then I'm going to make, I don't know, about four points, I think, reflecting on this particular chapter. Now, this is just part one of Balaam. Balaam, he's an interesting character. He was not a false prophet. He was a wicked prophet. He's a little baffling to read about Balaam. Uh, but there it is. And so the Lord makes a point by, ha- by giving us the record here and recording and preserving this particular part of the history of Israel 
in the time as they're just beginning to come out of the wilderness. They're not that far. Most, by the time we get here, most of the Israelites of the generation who came out of Egypt are dead because God judged them since they didn't have the faith to go on over into the promised land when they got there the first time. The judgment was to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until that generation would die out, except, of course, for Joshua and Caleb. Even Moses, Aaron, would die without entering the promised land. So they're very close. They've, been, they've already defeated Canaanites. We've seen that before, last time, I think. They've already begun a campaign against the Canaanites, albeit on the other side of the Jordan. And yet still, these are, these are considered Canaanite nations. So that brings us then to how they come to Moab. Now let's look at this, and I'll go through it and then reflect upon it. The sons of Israel journeyed and encamped in the plains of Moab across the Jordan from Jericho. Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. Moab became terrified of the people, for they were numerous, and Moab became disgusted because of the sons of Israel. Moab said to the elders of Midian, Now this assembly will eat up everything around us as the ox eats up the greens of the field. Balak, the son of Zippor, was king of Moab at that time. He sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor, to Pethor, which is by the river of the land of his people, to call for him, saying, A people has come out of Egypt, and behold, they have covered the eye of the land, and they are stationed opposite me. So now please come and curse this people for me. For they are too powerful for me. Perhaps I will be able to wage war against them and drive them out of the land. For I know that whomever you bless is blessed and whomever you curse is cursed. Let's stop there. Indeed, as the story develops, Balaam knows the people of Israel, knows about Israel. He knows the God of Israel, that is to say he knows about the God of Israel, Yahweh. He knows him. And he also knows, as we will see as the story develops, he also knows that Israel has the special blessing of Yahweh. As a matter of fact, back in Genesis chapter 12, when Abram was called out of Ur of the Chaldees and then given the promise from Yahweh and given the promise not just of a great people but of a great land Yahweh said I will bless those who bless you I will bless those who curse you and into you through you all the families of the earth will be blessed so these Israelites carry a very special blessing for all the families of the earth and we know how that develops into the New Testament so here, Balach, who worships Baal, is concerned. He, his, 
as the, as the theology of the rest of the nations in and around that area, that whole part of the world, they each had uh, their God, their particular God they worshipped. And their gods were regional gods. So that they didn't really, they didn't really expect their God to do great things beyond a certain region or in a certain way. That's the way it was with Baal. We saw that not long ago where the people that came against Israel um, were convinced that since God was a God of the mountains and they lost the fight in the mountains, they needed to fight him down on the plains because their God was God on the plains and that would make him stronger. So they had a weird theology. But it was all demonic, and here, of course, it all, all of these false religions are born in opposition to the true and living God because they were Elilim, they were demon gods, they were powerful demon entities at work. And in, in those cultures in that day, they uh, manifested their power in false uh, religion through the worship of false gods, still yet regional gods, and yet they worshiped them in, in these horrible ways that we've discussed before. Here is, however, Israel, whose God is powerful. And the news of how God has been with Israel in the defeat of previous nations on their way to the promised land. And because the Amorites were more powerful than the Moabites and the Moabites are standing in the way, Balak wants to make some kind of preemptive strike. He had enough sense, it seems, to know somehow, in, in dark, he saw it in darkness, that we don't only wage war and have conflict in a physical sense, it also occurs in the spiritual realm. And that is seen probably in this, in this account as much as it is anywhere else in the Old Testament. So he's powerless to do anything with his army against Israel. Therefore, he thinks to call on this prophet who obviously has a reputation. A reputation of, of divination, um, of, of, uh, of being able to call blessings and cursings, and he makes money at it. He's, he does well, I guess, in, in such a line of work. So he is, he is called for by the king to curse Israel. So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian went with magic charms in their hands. They came to Balaam and conveyed Balak's message to him. So they're all dolled up with magic charms. Demonic darkness. So this is, now I understand this. Everything has a spiritual side to it. 
It was seen more in a physical sense previously, like for example the Amorites, when, when Israel defeated the Amorites. You could see that. You could see blood and you could see one army squashing another army. But there, it should be noted, really, and the, and the more we mature in the faith, the more we are able to recognize the spiritual realm, the spiritual side of things. And there is a darkness that is raging in the world today. I can't say that it's unlike at any other time in history because it was, there was some pretty dark stuff in, in previous times in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament with thinking of Rome and, and later thinking of Greece and, and the idolatry. And there have even been times of deep darkness in the history of the church. So it's not to say that these days are worse it is to say, however, in our setting in the United States, which, which frankly was founded on a Judeo-Christian uh, culture and uh, people came from over there to over here to evangelize the people who were here to plant churches and in planting churches, plant villages and to live a life apart from religious persecution. So there was great faith that moved forward in the history of our nation. Uh, I, I, we should all, well, not all of us because I'm so old. I keep forgetting that most of the time I'm the oldest guy in the room. But I recall, a time, for example, I remember in the second grade, Miss Chestnut, first day of school, first, second day of school, somewhere like that, she was straightening out her role and went to everybody in the room and we had to stand up and tell the class who we were, our names. We had to tell the class what our fathers did. That's how she put it. You know, what any, what does your mama do? They just said, what does your daddy do? Tell us your name. I was seven years old. What does your daddy do? And where do you go to church? You, I, I don't know. My, you, would you do that today? I don't know. I, I kind of doubt it. Uh, so, you know, you stand up. My name is such and such. My daddy does this. Most of us didn't know what our daddies did. Uh, but just about all of us knew where we went to church. In those days, over the speaker, they would have a morning uh, Bible reading, a devotion and prayer. It was that way really all the way through high school with me. And I remember how strong Sundays used to be where just about everybody went to church. This was life. Uh, this is why you didn't work on Sunday because you went to church. It was, a, it was a, a time, it was sort of a golden age, I guess, in a lot of ways. Um, the, the, the Christianity was so strong. Satan, however, in recent decades has, has done his work and has made an attack on the scriptures and on the church. And if the church, if the scriptures 
can be, if the sword can be struck out of our hands and we have no weapon to fight with, then we are quite weak and an easy prey for the enemy. And of course, that's what's happened over the past, I don't know, several decades. It probably started in its infancy in the middle 1800s, but it really came to fruition in, uh, in the middle 1900s. So a younger generation is caused it. I remember talking to a man one time who went to, now these were in the days when the, when the Southern Baptist seminaries were very liberal, most of them. And I knew a man, he was older than me, but he had he committed himself to preach. He left his work and he went off to Southern Seminary, Louisville, Kentucky. He came back not believing in the deity of Christ. He didn't believe in the virgin birth and he didn't believe in miracles. This, this, was, this was how he was rewarded for higher education in a seminary. I remember, I remember this guy. Uh, he's... He's probably dead now, but um, he was just all messed up. He was so filled with faith and ready to go soul winning and came back a wreck theologically. So that's just a microcosm of what has happened through the years in our country, in our nation. And so with the with the surrender and retreat of the church, we have the growth of demonic activity. And we see today in our country demonism that we really haven't seen, although it, it, you could, I've, I've, had, I've been friends of foreign missionaries who told me about some pretty dark stuff that happened in other continents and other parts of the world, some really wicked and evil things that were unthinkable, all done in religion. And we've, we were sort of sheltered from that because our faith was so strong, church life was so strong, Christianity was so strong. It was, just, it was just part of life and culture. And that's all seemingly, but seems like it's just all but gone because now, you know, laws are passed about where you can talk about Jesus, what kind of t-shirts you can wear if you're in school. Um, we could go on and on about that. And we're beginning to see the rise of deception and delusion and darkness on an unparalleled scale in our own culture here. So we, we, we move into that culture more deeply as time passes and hopefully do what we're strengthened, called, Sent forth to do, trusting the Lord, I'm sure part of it is his purge of the church in these last days. But we also see more and more of the spiritual warfare that's going on, the darkness, and how light can overwhelm darkness. Thank God. We're going we're gonna to be in Second Thessalonians here in a little while. On Sunday mornings, and it's in Second Thessalonians where we talk about the restrainer, he who restrains, and that which restrains. And if, of course, the restraining is still here, it still exists, 
even in a world that seems to be collapsing morally and, uh, and uh, with regard to, to Christianity. But God has a plan. He's not, certainly not defeated. He has a plan in all of that. But we, we see more and more of what existed in other cultures throughout history. Here is a case in point. Here is Moab. They are totally immersed in darkness. The worship of Baal. And they don't have the physical strength. They don't have the power. They don't have the army to defeat Israel. So the king says, well, with magic charms and with darkness, we'll come at them another way. We will seek to find a way to curse these people. Now, that'll be impossible because of the promise that rests on these people about blessing and cursing that I mentioned in, from a while ago from Genesis 12. Well, they come to Balaam with the king's message. He said to them, lodge here for the night and I will give you an answer when Yahweh speaks to me. So the Moabite nobles stayed with Balaam. Elohim came to Balaam. All right, now look. Balaam could not go to Elohim. The only way this, this uh, transaction, this discourse could occur is if Elohim comes to him. Elohim's too high. He's too far away. He can't go to Elohim, but Elohim comes to him. And this is the way the story starts in this, with regard to this part. Elohim came to him. Who are these men with you? Balaam said to Elohim, Balak, the son of Zippor, the king of Moab, has sent them to me. Now you're going to see that Balaam is very proud. And when we get to the end of this in a couple of weeks, you'll see how utterly wicked and sneaky this guy really is. But for now, his heart is filled with wickedness and pride. His interest, he, he's greedy. His interest is in money and reward. Not only does he want the money, but he wants the recognition. He wants people to think of him as the greatest guy there. So he says, he says, oh, these are, these are, these are dignitaries. They, they've come from the king. Behold, the people coming out of Egypt, a nation has covered the eye of the earth. Come and curse them for me. Perhaps I'll be able to fight against them and drive them out. This is what the king says to the wicked prophet. Elim said to Balaam, you shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people because they are blessed. When Balaam arose in the morning, he said, in, he said to Balak's nobles, return to your country for Yahweh has refused to let me go with you. Moab's nobles arose and came to Balak and said, Balaam refuses to come with us. Balak continued to send dignitaries more and higher in rank than these. So he, he won't take no for an answer. He's, 
his dark heart has convinced him that the only way to go after these people is to go after them spiritually and wage a spiritual war with them, to seek a curse upon them. So now he sends more important people than those who had previously gone to the wicked prophet. They came to Balaam and said to him, So said Balak, the son of Zippor, Please do not hesitate to come to me, for I will honor you greatly and do whatever you tell me to do. So please come and curse this people for me. Balaam answered and said to Balak's servants, Even if Balak gives me a house full of silver and gold, I cannot do anything small or great that would transgress the word of Yahweh Eli, the word of, uh, of the Lord my God. That's, how, that's what he says. Now you too, please remain here overnight and I will know what Yahweh will continue to speak with me. Balaam should have just dropped the mess, the, 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 the whole thing right there. But he can't stand it. He's offered, he's been offered more and higher and greater things than before. So he thinks to go back then to Yahweh. Okay, you guys, I will know what Yahweh will continue to speak. See, Yahweh has already spoken. But Balaam cannot seem to take this for an answer. Elohim came to uh, to Balaam that night and said to him, if these men have come to call for you, arise, go with them. But the word I speak to you, that you shall do. Now here is where we begin to learn some lessons. Well, if you feel that strongly about it, you go with them. With this one caveat, you have to do what I say and you can only speak what I tell you to speak, nothing else. In the morning, Balaam arose and saddled his she-donkey and went with the Moabite dignitaries. All right. They were supposed to come to him, but verse 21, he didn't wait. He was too eager to engage this whole thing. He's too excited about it and he's too interested and his everything about Balaam's purpose and efforts are all wrong here. He, he just, he doesn't want to wait. He's ready to go. So he's going to go to them. And this makes Elohim angry. Elohim's wrath flared because he was going And an angel of Yahweh stationed himself on the road to thwart him. And he was riding on his she-donkey and his two servants were with him. Seems like so far, so good. What he doesn't know is he's made Elohim angry. And an angel of the Lord is there as we're going to find out in the story. He's there with a sword drawn ready to kill him. Balaam is oblivious to a spiritual conflict 
that's going on. So, the she-donkey saw the angel of Yahweh stationed on the road with his sword drawn in his hand, so that the she-donkey turned aside from the road and went into a field. Balaam beat the she-donkey to get it back onto the road. So the first thing the donkey does is it bolts out of the way and goes off into the field. All right, that's warning number one. The angel of Yahweh stood in the path of the vineyards with a fence on this side and a fence on that side or a wall on either side. The she-donkey saw the angel of Yahweh and she pressed against the wall and she pressed Balaam's leg against the wall and he beat her again. The first time she bolts off into a field. Now she's saving this guy's life. And the way she does it the first time is just to get off the path and bolt off into the field. And he beats her. The second time they've come into a narrow passage and she can't go this way or that way. So she just stops and presses up against the wall. And he beat her again. The angel of Yahweh continued going ahead. He stood in an narrow place where there was no room to turn right or left. The she-donkey saw the angel of Yahweh. And he just laid down. He crouched down under Balaam. Balaam's anger flared and he beat the she-donkey with a stick. First thing she does is veers off into a field. Second thing, she stops. Finally, she just lays down. Balaam's greatest friend at this point is that she-donkey. Here is an animal that has greater spiritual vision than does Balaam. Yahweh opened the mouth of the she-donkey. And she said to Balaam. Now, 2 Peter says that at the end of this thing, Balaam was a maddening or an insane prophet. He's just crazy. But I have to add a little dramatic flair because I don't, I don't, it, doesn't, it doesn't say that it's not this way. So may I enjoy the moment. Now we're told, and the Hebrew makes it very clear, this is a she-donkey. To begin with, the first time the she-donkey talks, now this is a gospel according to Charles, you can take it or leave it. Because in 2 Peter it says, finally, that the she-donkey spoke with a man's voice. But I think it starts off with a female voice, as me. So this female donkey, in my view, perhaps with a woman's voice, to begin with, says... Probably crying like a woman cries. <laughs> Snibbing. That's the gospel according to Charles. 
But this is the way I see it, because it was a she-donkey. Wasn't a he-donkey, it was a she-donkey. It wasn't a they-donkey or a them-donkey, it was a she-donkey. <laughs> so, with tear-filled eyes and snubbing, in this frail voice that I think was a female's voice to begin with. What am I doing? Hit me three times. <laughs> Balaam said to the she donkey, I've struck you these three times for you've humiliated me. If I'd had a sword in my hand, I'd just kill you right now. Okay. The she-donkey said to Balaam, now here is where I think, now that you can take this or leave it, but I think it adds dramatic flair anyway. This is where the man's voice comes in. Am I not your she-donkey? The crying stops, see. On which you have ridden since you first started until now. Have I been accustomed to do this to you? He said, well, no. It seems to me that with the reply of the donkey, Balaam is shaken. Well, I would be too if, if my animal spoke to me. He said, no, you know, you've, you've never acted this way before. Yahweh opened Balaam's eyes he saw the angel of Yahweh standing in the road with a sword drawn in his hand. He bowed and prostrated himself on his face. The angel of Yahweh said to him, why have you beaten your she-donkey these three times? Now you see, same thing that was asked up there. Why are you beating me? Why have you done this? Why have you beaten your she-donkey these three times? Behold, I came out to thwart you, kill you. For the one embarking on the journey has hastened against me. The me I should have capitalized. This is, this is Yahweh Malach, angel of the Lord. You're too eager to try to work against me here you don't you don't have a clue of the spiritual conflict that's going on and how the spiritual realm is working and you can't even see the danger that you've been in because of your darkness and it was then that the she donkey's voice was awakened you're acting too eager to work against me. When the she-donkey saw me, it turned aside three times. Had she not turned aside before me, now also I would have also killed you and spared her. Balaam said to the angel of Yahweh, I have sinned. For I did not know that you were standing on the road before me. Now if it displeases you, I'll return. The angel of Yahweh said to Balaam, go with these men, but the word I will speak to you that you shall speak. 
So Balaam went with Balak's dignitaries. Balak heard that Balaam was coming, so he went out toward him to the city of Moab, which is on the border of Ammon, at the extreme edge of the border. Balak said to Balaam, did I not send you to call for you? Did I not send to you to call for you? Why did you not come to me? Am I indeed incapable of honoring you? Balaam said to Balak, behold, I have come to you. Do I have any power to say anything? The word Elohim puts into my mouth. That is what I'll say. Balaam went with Balak and they arrived at Kerith Huzot, which means a city of streets. And Balak slaughtered cattle and sheep and sent some to Balaam and to the dignitaries with him. And in the morning, Balak took Balaam and led him up to Bamath Baal. And from there, he saw part of the people. Now, what that means is they start sacrificing to Baal. And this is the end of this particular chapter. And of course, the story uh, deepens and thickens as we go. But to close out this part of the story, let me say about four things here. Number one, don't beat the donkey. Sometimes, actually not just sometimes, all of the time, when things seem awry, we should ask ourselves the question, what am I not getting here? What, what, what am I missing? You see, as the people of the Lord, we should understand that uh, confusion is not of the Lord, but Difficulties may come because we are failing to see the spiritual conflict that we're in. So number one, we should never beat the donkey. Number two, we need open eyes. Balaam was so focused on his goal to try to figure out a way to slide around Yahweh and curse the people of Israel and get all of this honor and wealth and stuff that he had, he had completely lost. As a matter of fact, I said a while ago, Peter calls him a maddening prophet. He, he's, he's, he's crazed with the darkness that has fallen upon him. And he doesn't have the eyes that he needs to see the situation that he's in, which leads to number three. It just might be the Lord who opposes us. We're not perfect. I got to tell you, there have been many times in my life and in reflection, I thank God on my face for it, that God has opposed me. When I come to a major decision or, or something in life that, that seems to be confusing or that I'm wanting to do, Looking back, I can see how the Lord opposed me in those things. And that's a sobering thought to think that, well, it's not just sobering, it's a blessing, it's a, a blissful thought to know that Yahweh would think so much of, of his own that he would send not just an angel, but a troop of angels to protect us from ourselves. Through the years, part of my prayer that I pray all the time is this, Lord, protect me from myself. I'm, 
I'm too weak and I, I, I'm, 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 I understand that I'm facing spiritual things and sometimes I can't see the spiritual side of it and God, I need help. And so, Lord, if you have to send those angels to get in the way, if you have to mash my leg up against the wall or if my donkey just has to sit down and I get frustrated, Lord, let that happen if that's the way it has to be. So that I won't fall under the sword of the angel of Yahweh. And finally, what if you're the donkey? What you going to do? Somebody that's depending on you is trying to drive you in the wrong direction. What you going to do? You can see the spiritual adversary, you can see the danger, you can see the death that is straight ahead. But the one who is driving you won't let up on you. What if you're the donkey? How will you handle such a situation? Well, it goes back to what Yahweh said to Balaam. You see, there's no room in this thing for my opinion, for how I feel, my feelings. Who cares about my feelings? I was always told to go kiss myself in the mirror and I'd get over it. It's not my opinion, it's not my direction that I should be consumed with. It is the word of God and what direction it sends me in. Yahweh said to Balaam, okay, but let me tell you something. You don't say anything that I don't say. You stick with my word. You don't go beyond my word. You don't go around my word. You stay in my word. Well, this is, this is how we respond if we're the donkey. You can admonish people, instruct people with the word of God. And if they take up an argument against that, the argument is not against you and it's not personal. It is an argument against God and against his word. Don't beat the donkey. Keep your spiritual eyes open. Take care that it might be the Lord from time to time who opposes you and know how to act if you're the donkey. Let's pray. We'll be through tonight. Father God in heaven, thank you for your word and for the lessons that it gives to us. I pray, oh God, that you'll give us spiritual eyes, that we will understand the dangerous times that we live in, and that we will see beyond that into the victory that is ours through Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.